Exciting overtime episode of your favorite labor podcast, Work Stoppage. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. We really, really appreciate it because we will never run ads on this show. And so your donations are what keep the show going. If you're not in the Discord already, get in the Discord. It's a great place to pick our brain about uh, anything that you might have questions about. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know how helpful I'll be, but get in there and ask me things. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you haven't gotten stickers from us already, patrons, get on Patreon and send us your address it's literally all you have to do we will be so thrilled to send you some stickers and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can write a five-star review either on apple podcasts or on the side of a pair of shoes that you then tie the laces <laughs> together and throw over a telephone wire <laughs> <laughs> Hell that's yeah. really great <laughs> well uh this episode is going to be the long-awaited episode on what is rank and file organizing i know that we talk about it all the fucking time uh and maybe if it's not clear based on just our constant you know hitting of the points or we kind of wanted to go into what it is and also really more importantly what it really isn't like what what things mm-hmm. really exemplify what are what is not rank and file organizing because one of the things about this method is being flexible and being able to adapt to different situations and so it's there's no real one size fits all when it comes to a rank and file organizing method but there are very specific principles that we need to stick to in order to really make it effective and actually accurate in being a rank and file organizing method yeah, mm-hmm. like I I think that like as you kind of were alluding to, like there have been there's so many episodes because this has, you know, become one of the primary themes of the show is is our advocacy for rank and file unionism. Oh, it, you know, in contrast to the primary form of unionism we often see, you know, in the US, more bureaucratic business unionism, which we'll talk about some more in a bit. But it, like like you're saying, like we've done so many things where we're like, we should do rank and file unionism. Don't do the opposite of rank and file unionism without actually sitting down and, and talking about well, wait, what is rank and file unionism? Right. Yeah. And there aren't necessarily a lot of really good resources about this online. Like uh, I, I saw Brett labor something he's a he's a popular labor posting twitter account and in one of his his guides to like uh labor reporters when he got to the term rank and file he said use it however you want and uh (laughs) you you absolutely can it's a really good way to to just gesture towards like what you think is good about different organizing practices but for the sake of making a term that we bandy about pretty frequently on this podcast absolutely clear we just wanted to take some time and uh tell you to use it however you want but to mean a certain thing right 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 so i think the best place to start on what is rank and file unionism is from like a a rank and file union themselves Mm -hmm. Uh, the united electrical radio and machine workers of america union uh, is one of the ones that we've talked about a bunch of times especially just because of the militant organizing from graduate student unions who've recently uh been organizing under there i mean obviously and when uh we get into the there's going to be multiple episodes of this. We're going to get into some other stories, including like the uh, UAW one member, one vote initiative. 
Um, but I, I really wanted to, well, and I, I want to point out to people, if you want a good example of on the ground organizing in a rank and file method on episode 81, we had an interview with Columbia graduate student union leader, Charlie, and you can go back and listen to that. And it's really such a great, um, like story of the very difficult, uh, conditions that they went through to actually build up that rank and file movement. But, um, I believe they were UAW, right? Yeah, like that's the thing. Like for folks, because I know with our standard format being, you know, weekly news, like covering it very in the moment, I could totally mm-hmm. see people who, you know, jump in after certain episodes, not necessarily always, you know, going back through the whole catalog because it was very much like most episodes are like, it's it's most relevant at the time that we release it. But that interview in particular, like even though the Columbia grad student worker strike, you know, is over now, like the level of detail that Charlie went into on their process is useful evergreen. Like it's really good information that I think could be helpful for anybody who's looking into actually trying to either a form a, a rank and file union in a place that's not organized, or if you're already in a union and you want to make your, you know, your, your union more democratic, the specifics and the processes and the actual like nitty gritty details of how to do that. Charlie does a really good job. Our, our guest, when we talked about Columbia of laying some of the, that stuff out in that episode. So I definitely do recommend as you're saying, folks, listen to that. Absolutely. And then we have a couple of really good definitions uh, just to get us started from the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, also referred to as UE. Uh, And they they define the term rank and file as, quote, those who form the major portion of any group or organization, excluding the leaders and officers. And then in UE, they say we use the term rank and file unionism to describe how our union operates. It simply means that it's the members who run the union in a democratic and collective manner. The members set the policies of the union and make all of the decisions of importance that affect their own local unions. And then you have the this UE longtime UE officer and organizer Ernie DeMaio, who also defines the UE's unique style of rank-and-file unionism this way. He says the members elect the union's officers, local district and national, who in turn are required to report on their stewardship of the union concerning its policies, program, expenditures, and contract negotiations, which must have the prior consent of the members and their approval on all of the actions taken and contracts negotiated on their behalf. The essence of rank-and-file unionism is not democratic rhetoric, but democratic practice, the members run the union, which I think is a really great way to explain it and echoes a lot of what you hear people talk about when they first start to have, you know, more, I guess you'd say like historically progressive politics is they're like, why isn't everything bottom up? Why isn't everything horizontal and and democratic and, and, and able to, you know, why can't we instantly recall representatives we don't like? And it's like, there is a place where, where these things happen and it's called a rank and file union. Right. And one of the things that these definitions kind of outline is that it's kind of useful in a couple different situations because there are different sorts of unions that exist. There's industrial unionism, there's solidarity unionism, tenant unionism, uh, even worker owned cooperatives can technically use this method of organizing to actually make sure that democratic say of the workers themselves is what is put at the forefront 
forefront of the union movement and that education in that very you know democratic and you know representative way of the actual uh, membership is the thing that is put forward and so in order to actually go into like why why is it that we actually use some of these these very key things like democracy i think is where we're gonna start uh <laughs> like and you know what it may seem silly like really why you're john you were just alluding into it yourself by saying you know yeah why isn't it everything you know grassroots bottom up kind of organizing mm-hmm. well that's because it's not always in the interest of the ruling people to have a democracy and have the the people who are affected by all of these conditions have a say. But like, let's actually kind of like dig into this a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think right off the bat, my biggest concern with democracy is that if I don't agree with the majority, suddenly I'm I'm at the whims of the tyranny of the majority. <laughs> I believe Jordan Peterson told me that in between yeah. eating two large steaks. <laughs> right. Yeah. I the first thing I will, uh, one of the things we're going to try to do here is like what is and isn't. And so uh, one of the things that we want to kind of debunk, uh, if I mean at least to some extent of the the idea of the tyranny of the majority. Uh, one of the things that we see when we see those like anti democratic practices is. Uh, a lot of like things like class collaborationism, corruption, d- continually deteriorating work conditions. I mean, these are really characteristics of things like business unionism. But you can even see just in the way that normal workplaces are are functioning and how they aren't democratically run, how these things are still the exact uh, they has the exact same situation. The corruption where your boss is stealing your your surplus value. The deterioration of your work conditions so that they can steal more of your surplus value. Now, I'm not saying that the union is exactly like that. I'm saying that the union and then can uh, in, have some of these similar characteristics would lead them to not represent the majority of the workers and then also try to entrench themselves in their positions of power, which allow them to do things like class collaborationism, uh, corruption within the union, and and honestly, concessionary contracts, which deteriorate work conditions. Y- yeah, and like this is one of those things where I think... It- I mean, obviously, this just doing the show generally has been an extremely educational process for me as somebody who, who hasn't actually been a member of a union myself. Like the the definition that like the UE lays out for what rank and file unionism is, what I had sort of you know coming into this from the general lefty perspective, it had this sort of naive idea. Well, well, yeah, that's just. That's what a union is generally, right? All, all I mean a union is an organization of workers so it's going to be run democratically, right? And then, you know, through the course of doing this show now for like a year and a half, there's been so many examples over and over and over again that we've run into where it's like, eh, no, turns out actually a lot of them are not run that way. And like the there's kind of a a side to this that becomes very easily weaponized by the right because you will see portrayed in a lot of media. And I feel, although I feel like this was even more of a trope, like back in the nineties and the early two thousands, you had the whole idea of, well, we don't really need unions anymore. Unions are all just corrupt and all this stuff. And like, while that's obviously a largely like a right wing canard to, to push back against labor organizing, the thing that unfortunately gives that some teeth and some play with people is that there have been plenty of, of, of examples that, you know, people can easily point to of leadership within some of the biggest unions within the United States that have 
been anti-democratic that have led to corruption, embezzlement, like collusion with the businesses. I mean, uh, we're in the like episode like after this where we talk about the UAW, there's <laughs> that had to play a huge role in the in the one member one vote campaign. It, it, it's, uh, it's so interesting what you're saying, Dan. It's almost like the unions that are actually the biggest failures didn't suffer from a tyranny of the majority, but a tyranny of an empowered minority who exactly. made a relationship with the capitalist class that was oppressing them as a group. Right, and I think that that's the last point that we really wanted to get here on the tyranny of the majority is it, the idea that it that you know that's a problem. It ignores the actual conditions that we live under in capitalism, where we actually are at the whims of the capitalist ruling class. We do have a tyranny of a, a very small minority of wealthy ruling people who dictate our you know everyday living and working conditions, and just the idea that. You know, there's some even way to, uh, you know, defend the idea of the tyranny of the majority. Like, we don't have a majority democracy. Like, right. we just, like, the, the problems that we're seeing are a product of that, you know, ruling class dictating our, our living situation. Yeah, well, and, like, I can understand, like, there's a kernel of truth there where it's like, sure, if you get 100 people together and 90 of them vote to do thing A and 10 of them vote to do thing B, and now they all have to do thing A, the 10 who voted for thing B are going to be, like, a little peeved. But that's, you know, that's such a, a, a generalized case that doesn't take into account, like, the material conditions on the ground. For instance, those 10 people who voted for thing B might have done so because the owner of the company that, ever, that all these people work at told them to. And so it's like, okay, sure, there's a tyranny of the majority and it's inconvenient for some people, but who are those people? They're the people who would like to be running their own tyranny of the minority instead. You know, well, it's, it's just ridiculous. It, it reflexively falls apart, I think. And one of my experiences in working in a worker co- in a worker co-op is the idea that like uh, there is the people do have a say on like the shop floor. People might do something slightly differently. Uh, there's not always, you know, you're not voting on literally everything. You're collaborating. You're having discussions with your fellow workers, and through that, you're coming up with the best practices. And that sort of organizing is, in in part, the rank and file style organizing of actually talking to all of the workers and also the workers talking to each other and right. being leaders in the shop itself to decide the way that things go because honestly the workers know the most about the job they're fucking doing (laughs) yeah i and i mean fundamentally it really just comes down to the whole idea that it's like as part of any collective endeavor whether it's a union whether it's society and i guess in air quotes like Mm -hmm. uh whether it's uh a political group that you and your comrades are working on the whole concept is that it's like well if the conduct of the org affects all the people in it, whatever kind of organization is, then everybody should have an equal say in how it runs. Like that's, it's the basic concept. And and it's obviously it's, this is one of those things that I'm sure some people are listening are like, well, yeah, this is all obvious. Why are you going over this? But it's like the, the tyranny of the majority, as much as we're making fun of it, that shit was taught to me in like my my social studies classes in mm-hmm. in high school because they're like this is why we have all our checks and balances and why the United States government is so good and they leave out the part that the whole that whole entire concept came out of a group of people who thought that if you didn't own property no one should ever listen to what you have to say mm-hmm. like that's fundamentally where that concept comes from it's a it is a at its core 
anti-democratic concept that was put forward by a small group of the richest people in like the United States who thought that they should be the only ones who should have a say over everything. Right. And so like really this whole idea, like the, the concept that like, if you let the, the mass of people run things, well then what about dissenting voices? And that's really just, it's, you're just saying you don't want like everyone to be equal and and you're promoting this idea that certain people's voices should count more than others. Right. There's a really strong ideological undercurrent you may have noticed here, which is that we are relentlessly focusing on the class element of what makes a union worthwhile and, and how to run it effectively. And there's a reason for that. As Dan said, it, it both, uh, you know, the idea of the tyranny of the majority both originated in the bourgeois end of class society and mm-hmm. it serves today to reinforce the the security of the bourgeois as a class. So to skim over or ignore the class relations based in union organizing is is to do it for the wrong reasons, essentially. And I think it becomes patently obvious when you do anal- analyze the class situation that rank and file is by far not only like the most um, desirable form of union organization, but also by far the most effective. Right. And I think that one of the things before we go too much deeper into the, the class-based approaches, I want to really just focus a little bit more on the reasons why we do positively use democracy. And it's because we should have a say in the way that our lives run. The mm-hmm. amount of time that we spend at our jobs is, I mean, for for a lot of working people is about a third of our lives. And to not actually have a say in the way that that goes takes a huge portion of our lives and leaves it to the whims of whoever is the ruling class. And, uh, and I think that it's really important that we actually have a democratic say in our day-to-day lives. And that's only done through a rank-and-file style organizing in unions and other sorts of organizations. And another thing that's really important about the union aspect is it being at the point of production, where the actual labor exploitation happens under a capitalist system, and Mm -hmm. trying to revert that and to change it towards a more progressive approach of actually a a more socialist approach of giving workers themselves say in that huge portion of their lives. And that democracy literally enfranchises us in, like I said, a third of our lives. And there are other parts of society that need organization to give us more more democratic say in the other parts of our lives. But as a labor show, we're focusing a little bit more on the labor aspect and the point of production when it comes to, you know, these situations. Yeah. And I think to that point, like, I think that's part, part of the reason that the whole idea of a rank and file union is, is so foreign to people and seems so strange and may seem so radical is cause, cause you know, the whole thing with rank and file unionism is that we had on a, the, a meme review a couple of weeks ago, or I don't know, time is weird now. might've been months, but where you had basically, it was a Patrick meme that was, he's like, take democracy and apply it to the workplace. And that's functionally like what we're talking about here. And it can be summed up very simply, but like, to your point, like, we see so little actual democratic practice in our lives. Like our, in the workplace, we are functioning under a dictatorship by, of our boss where we don't have a say in how things are done. The boss decides and you either, you either do what the boss says or you get fired or, you know, disciplined or whatever. And, and, 
and just generally, we see so, despite all the rhetoric that our, our government dresses itself up in, we see so little actual democracy in practice that, like, the mere discussion that the workers should vote on how things get done in their workplace is seen as this insane communist or anarchist concept sometimes. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I mean, obviously, as communists and anarchists and other sorts of people who are trying to enfranchise workers and workers are, uh, ourselves who have the interest of actually having a say in our lives, uh, this is the way that we have to go about achieving that and building the power and and actually having unions and a labor force that has the class oriented objective because if we're actually going to change society we have to organize together and build up that consciousness that class consciousness in order to actually overcome these really horrible uh, dictatorial conditions that we live under and there are a bunch of other things besides uh, rank-and-file organizing that are offered up to the working class as substitutes and alternatives. And uh, many of them are not just less desirable than uh, rank-and-file organization, but actively serve to stymie any kind of labor effort and function as a cul-de-sac for worker energy. And we're going to detail a few of those because I think they get tossed around pretty often. And we've even mentioned some of them on the show before, such as ESOPs, which we particularly don't like. Right. And we're going to go through a, a small list of, of like what basically what isn't uh, maybe what, mm -hmm. what isn't rank and file organizing, but also more specifically, like, how is it not possible for us to do rank and file organizing in certain cases? Yeah. And and I think like for a first example here. One that I don't think necessarily gets thrown around as like a necessarily a substitute for unions, but is thrown around. I, I see it lumped in as like, oh, this is this is a progressive way of organizing a business. This is is so much better than your standard thing. It's it's like a co-op and that what, what we're, we're talking about here is consumer co-op. So this is this is different than a worker co-op because, you know, in a worker co-op, the workers who are actually do the labor are the ones who own and operate and have a say in how the, the a business is run. A consumer co-op is different than that. And, and if folks listened to when we were talking about the recent union drive at REI uh -huh. in Manhattan, that's a really good example of what we're talking about with a consumer co-op. So, And it can be confusing because oftentimes consumer co-ops, they drop the term consumer and they're just called co-ops. Usually this is, is in, most people will have seen this in reference to like grocery stores. That's probably the most common. But what a consumer co-op is, is you have, you sort of have socialization of the means of production, but not amongst all of the society and not amongst all of the workers. You, it's, it's basically like, well, okay, instead of one person owning the a company and running it for their own profit or a small board of directors running the, the, the business for a profit. We're going to have the customers who purchase from the business. They will be the owners. And that's the basic functioning of, of uh, how a grocery co-op or a, a place like REI works where the owners of the business, the people who own the means of production are the people who shop there. And this is oriented. The whole purpose of all that is to 
produce the lowest prices for those consumers possible. And so there is there is a bit of a difference there. It's rather than explicitly being we want to own these means of production so we can produce the maximum amount of profit out of this like and and like raise prices as high as we can get them, the idea of this is to lower prices. But that comes with its own problems. And there's there's two key aspects that make consumer co-ops not really ultimately good for workers. And so the first one is that since the ultimate goal of a consumer co-op is to minimize prices, then within the capitalist system, that becomes prey to all of the same pressures that any other capitalist enterprise is subject to because a portion of the price of the product, because that's the other thing, like you got to get it kind of got into getting it into Marx and like the labor theory of value, like ultimately the price of any commodity is tied to, though not necessarily like a direct one-to-one relation, but it is ultimately tied back to the amount of labor that it takes to produce a product, which means that a consumer co-op is incentivized to keep labor costs down so that they can keep prices down, which means that it's in their best interest to keep the wages of the workers at the consumer co-op down. And ultimately, you know, that's not a pro-worker position because it's in the worker's interest to get paid as much for their labor as they can while maintaining the business in operation. And so that is a fundamentally irreconcilable contradiction between the consumer co-op ownership of the people that shop there and the interests of the workers that actually work there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to think I want to point out one more thing tying it back to the class relations of this is because when we are looking at the consumers themselves, we actually are not uh, again doing a class-based analysis on who is the owners of the means of production because uh, we're looking at the people who produce the value and they them not having a say and instead anyone who happens to have the money to participate in this co-op you know whether they be also working class or ruling class type people they all belong in this union of sorts that is the consumer co-op and through that it is literally not possible for it to be a rank and file union as their economic interests individually will come into conflict with one another so it's not actually even possible to to organize a consumer co-op in a rank and file method just because of those inherent contradictions of class yeah well it's like the um the consumers as consumers are like i'm cooperating and then the consumer owners are like i'm cooperating and then the workers get together and they're like isn't there someone you forgot to ask that's right <laughs> yeah well because that's the thing like you could organize the workers at a consumer co-op mm-hmm. in a rank and file manner but they're gonna have the same fundamental clash of interests right that they would have at any other operation and so the, uh, the point here is that like consumer co-ops are not a working class alternative to the way businesses function now. They can, mm-hmm. you know, they can be a great way to get cheaper groceries or to get cheaper outdoor gear at, at REI for sure. But but unlike worker co-ops, since the workers don't have control over how the, the business functions, for the workers' sake, the consumer co-op is is basically like working anywhere else. And to make it not seem like we're just putting, a, you know, any sort of just straw person out there, I want to actually quote what the uh, consumer cooperative. Uh, there's like this uh, uh, online 
website, which basically represents the idea of like a consumer cooperative and what their goals are. And they specifically said, uh, cooperatives are successful because they provide valuable services and save consumers money. Uh, Since the primary goal of cooperatives is to meet needs, not generate profits, they can serve their members at low cost. Again, if you look at this statement as as it stands, there is at no point a recognition of the people actually producing the value. There is no recognition of the workers in that statement, and that ignoring of the of the workers is that again undemocratic practice that we ref- that's we that we will have been referencing and will continue referencing throughout this episode yeah like i love that they put in there oh the cooperative is to meet needs not generate profits but i'm like but you meet the needs of who you right you left that part out it's not society generally it's not certainly not the workers that work there it's purely the needs of the people who have the money to buy in to be part of the the co-op ownership yeah i mean my mom went to a uh, like a co-op style grocery store in pittsburgh for many years and i remember thinking to myself one day when i went with her wow there are a lot of nice cars in the parking lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah. Well, and that also, I mean, you have to be able to invest in it to, in certain cases to actually mm-hmm. get membership benefits, which excludes uh, like really like po- people in poverty. Uh, also, these sorts of things don't tend to show up in lower income neighborhoods. Not and at all. So, I mean, it's really, you can see the class characteristics within this sort of thing. But to move on to um, what John had uh, kind of alluded to, mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about the um, difference between like a rank and file union and other sorts of like investment based unions, which can include things like ESOPs, but also extend to things like technically homeowners associations, which again, uh, like ESOPs and homeowners associations are different in that, like, a homeowners association again has that very severe like colla- that class contradiction built within it in that you know it, it can be ruling class people in these organizations and and I, I don't want to get way too deep into that because I think that honestly we nobody's really asking about it but I did want to at least point to it a little bit but let's let's go in on the ESOPs and and to actually say what what that really is yeah yeah like just briefly, I would think of HOAs less like any sort of a collection of like working class unity or and think of it more almost as a trade association because it's closer sure. to that than than a than a collection of workers. But mm-hmm. ESOPs though, we've talked about these a few times on the show because they're they're often touted as this way to we're gonna make the business employee owned in gigantic air quotes. Right. And, and the thing that can be very frustrating about talking about ESOPs is because is that they can have a really broad range of what they actually are, and because ESOP like is the you know the abbreviation employee stock ownership plan is is what that stands for, and that can mean a huge range of things. But there's usually ultimately really two possibilities, and one that makes up the vast majority of these. It's possible for an ESOP to be organized in such a way that the the current workers at a at a business are the majority owners of the the stock of the company and therefore they do directly have a a voting real ability to control how things are done at the business and so it would essentially function very similarly to a worker co-op mm. however <laughs> that is not how the majority of 
businesses that are organized as ESOPs actually function. Like in the vast majority of these cases, at least in the United States, I mean, I, I don't, you know, have a, a depth of information on how these operate in other countries. Uh, I have actually seen some really interesting stuff about how they work in China. Like I guess Huawei is actually organized as an ESOP, which is interesting. Mm. Um, but I don't, I don't know about the details of how that is, but in the U S a lot of the time, cause we'll see these stories and we, we talked about one way back on episode 30 with Taylor guitars where this, you'll see these articles like, Oh, this company is the, the owner's retiring and he's selling the business to the workers. And now it's going to, it's employee owned folks. It's great. It's a co-op now. And in so many of these cases and Taylor guitars was a, was a case like this. That's really, you got to look into the details and that's because that's not really how it, it ends up functioning. It basically just ends up turning it into us just going from one type of capitalist business to a capitalist business with a fancy 401k. <laughs> yeah. Like you still end up in so many of these ESOPs with the way that the details are written out the majority of the shares are still concentrated into very few hands and specifically not in the hands of the current workers of the people who are actually still doing the labor. Like mostly what you end up with these is that as a benefit of working at the business, and you see this at places that aren't organized as ESOPs, basically as working there, you can get shares of the company as a benefit at Even which Starbucks does this. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, the, like the company I used to work at had, they had like, you know, one of the, the, your 401k has company stock match. So if you, if you put some of your retirement money towards company stock, the company will give you way more than if you put into anything else. So really this sort of, the idea that this makes a company employee owned relies on the same sorts of deceptive language that was used to sell 401ks to replace pensions. And we talked about this in the decline of American unionism series, Mm -hmm. this idea that if you own a couple of shares of a company, well, you're an owner. Now you're part of the owning class when you actually have functionally no real say in how it's run because the vast majority of the stock is still concentrated in the hands of a few people. And many ESOPs function that way where every, every worker may have a certain number of shares, but it's not so much that like the the people actually doing the labor have enough shares to control the board and thus control how things are done. And so in that sort of a situation, cause I, I don't want to say that all ESOPs are bad. There are some that do function basically as employee owned employee run companies. And that's good. But most of them function basically just as any other normal capitalist enterprise that exploits the workers and tries to keep labor prices down because their goal is still to maximize profits and the the workers do not fundamentally have a much higher say in how things are run. And so it's really important whenever you hear, oh, this company is going to become employee run to look into what that really means. Cause very rarely does it actually mean this is now workers have an equal share and they can come in there and determine how their own labor is directed. Well, and again, like you were saying, we don't want to just like condemn the practice because there is even, even in some of the like less d- democratic ways of this being organized, sometimes this does come out with workers getting more like a bigger slice of the pie. But again, sure. when looking yeah. into what our next topic is going to be business unionism, we're not necessarily just looking 
looking for a slightly bigger slice of the pie. We're looking for a say in our lives. The reason why, again, going back to the democracy point, is because we don't have a say in this huge portion of our lives, and we should be able to have some sort of, of, of democratic say in the way that things work. And without that, it's just wholly insufficient to actually meeting what the workers' interests truly are. And so... With that segue, we're going to go right into the classic, the thing that we talk about hating the most. <laughs> Not right. the most, but but uh, in in the union movement, one of the the our favorite uh, I don't know polemics against uh, is that of business unionism, and we have gone over this and with so many different examples. I mean, the in the decline of American unionism, we got into the problems that have led to such low levels of union membership in the United States. Um, on top of the list, we have uh, wait, well, yeah, and at the top of the list, we have business unionism uh, here, where it's basically a way of running a class, r- running a union in a class collaborationist manner, where the leadership in the union uh, works with the bosses rather than struggling against them in that class-based nature that we have been really trying to to hammer home in this in this particular episode. Yeah, and like, because that's the thing. It's like when we talk about rank and file unionism, we talk about the necessity for worker democracy, the the necessity for all the workers involved in the union to have a say in how the union is run. There's oftentimes it, you, you have people who, like, before I got into you know working on this show, were naive and thought, well, that's how unions are supposed to work, right? That's the default, and and so it's really important to to have this understanding of what business unionism is as a contrast to understand that this is actually how the majority of major unions in the United States have functioned for most of U.S. labor history, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Um, and especially the last 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so business unionism in practice means basically the opposite of rank and file unionism it's it's a form of unionism where it's still an organization made up of workers but most members of the union have very little involvement with the way the unions run and they may only have any substantial engagement with being in a union when the contract expires and it's time to for the union leadership to roll out and pretend to be tough and and say we're gonna get everybody together and we're gonna threaten to strike even though we have no intention of actually striking and so like and and this all comes down to the the problem with business unionism, which is that it emphasizes the importance of a thin layer of professional staff to run the day-to-day operations of the union instead of the workers. And a lot of times this professional staff is made up of like lawyers, accountants, and other professional folks who were never members of the union in the first place. Like certainly, you know, not against somebody who may have been like, say an Amazon warehouse worker who Mm -hmm. then goes to night school and gets a law degree and becomes a lawyer and wants to make contributions to their union by, by doing that. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) Like, uh, even then it, uh, you know, there, it's still, we would want that the actual say of the way that things go down to still be in the hands of the workers who are at the point of production. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, you end up with this thin strata of folks who the idea is like, leave the running of the union to the experts. We need to have people who can devote their full time and energy to, to grappling with the boss and making sure that we, you know, put our, our strongest, you know, face forward against them, which sounds cool in theory, but But the the like the workers are in that point already. Right. And the, and the thing is, is that it, 
it can because I I don't want to sound like this always happens because there's like you know secret bourgeois scheming. How can we take the union out of the workers' hands? That's not always how it happens. There can be people who are just like, look, most folks. They're busy, they run ragged, they don't have the time or the energy or the to, to handle this stuff. We need to spend our money on folks who can yeah. spend all of their time doing this organizing and, and focus all on that, and they'll be the ones that run things. And well, that can a, be done like with a well-intentioned thought, but it leads to all these problems. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's well-meaning liberalism where you I think and, it, and it's only honestly incredibly like paternalistic to mm-hmm. say that Absolutely. the workers themselves don't have the 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 means of actually affecting the th- the place where they are at the like a huge portion of their lives. And and I really find it to be highly condescending to think that the workers themselves maybe aren't smart enough or yeah, yeah. aren't like it's just. Uh, yeah. It, it also, to me, just doesn't. Um, it, it doesn't follow like a, a really logical progression of like what you would do most reasonably to to get the workers running their own workplace. Which is like, okay, if they are run ragged, then instead of selecting one or two and being like, okay, these are the professional union members, just make your first fight for more free time. And higher wages and less, you know, to eliminating the hurdles that are causing these workers to being run ragged. And then through doing that, they will be able to take a much more active role in the union much more quickly and effectively than if you designate, okay, Tim is in charge of the union now. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, it it could take forever for Tim to get people involved. Like. Yeah, well, even then, if you've been in an organization, you know that burnout is a real problem, mm-hmm. and that people get you know tired of working. And like these, that happens to these professionals too, who are then the only people who are doing the job, and then they drop the ball. One of the things that's really great about a worker-led organization is there are a lot more workers, and if we are educating all of those people in that rank and file method of bringing everyone in, teaching mm-hmm. everyone what it means, making sure that they are actually a part of the structure itself we actually alleviate some of that stress and burnout by being able to democratically share in that labor of running the thing that is only run on the workers themselves anyway yeah and to be clear like we're not like oh if if a union ever hires professional staff then they're betraying the workers the problem isn't you know hiring professional organizers the problem is creating a group of people who they're the only ones whose input is taken into account. A small group that is are the ones that do all the running and they only come back to the membership for uh, you know, at contract time to say, hey, here's the here's the here's the list we we came up with for what we think what we're gonna fight for. This is gonna be great. Everyone please rubber stamp this. Like that's the problem is is it's not the problem isn't like, oh they hired professional organizer. That's not the key issue. The mm-hmm. key issue is the level of participation. Because like, yeah, in the current labor climate in the U.S., organizing is an incredibly difficult task. Mm-hmm. So it it only makes sense that unions are, even rank-and-file unions, like UE, I'm sure, has tons of, like, professional staffers. But the key is, is that you still have to involve the greater membership. You have to, like, they have to be the ones who have a say in how things are happening. And that's what doesn't happen in business unionism. You have a thin strategy 
strata that decides 99% of what the union does and only comes back to the membership at contract time to say, we, the smart people, came up with this agreement with the company. It's the best thing we can possibly get. Just rubber stamp it. And then, because mm -hmm. like how many times have we seen like international like union leadership get all mad at their membership if they turn down a tentative agreement like mm -hmm. that comes out of this sort of thing and yeah. and, and the it's incentive a, it's it's democrat brain yes yeah absolutely and because and, and the sort of problem you run in with this also is that because if you have a small professional layer who are not the shop floor folks who are deciding everything who are who are picking the direction of the union then they end up with a different perception of what the interests of the union are. And that generally makes unions who are running a business unionist fashion, mm -hmm. that's what leads to the class collaborationism. Yeah. That's right. what leads to their, their, their re incredibly strong reticence to ever use the strike weapon. That's exactly what I wanted to go back to because, you know, we're, we're kind of getting back to some of the more overarching points of why we want rank and file unionism. But I do want to keep sticking to why business unionism is highly ineffective. And that is one of the things that they are very like hesitant to strike they find it disruptive and dangerous and i mean a lot of the rhetoric that we've talked about uh it being like you know what was it the um the quote being like we are dedicated to freedom through the american profit system and, oh yeah and the, the, mm -hmm. those sorts of of uh pieces of rhetoric as the core pieces of business unionism and so it makes it so that they don't want to strike even in the first place You'll see even from uh, business union leadership, sometimes they will explicitly say that they are trying to preserve labor peace, which mm -hmm. is the most yeah. insane outcropping of this. But I think the logical conclusion, which is that when you engage in this kind of class collaborationist business unionism, the natural course of action is to try and preserve labor peace at all costs, which is wildly unproductive for the conditions for the workers. Well, yeah, and the notion of productivity, I mean, that is also one of the core tenets of business unionism is mm -hmm. the idea that if the business is more productive, then the workers will get a bigger share. But yet through that undemocratic structure, that's not what actually comes to pass because the interests are not aligned there. It is not actually always about bringing the, the workers who, who are the sole means of actually bringing in the the value of anything that's being produced uh, or or affected in this in these conditions to to exclude them in the name of productivity and and the idea that you know it's like some sort of like high tides raise all boats but the thing is is that when you're being stolen from it doesn't really matter yeah it's yeah. not that there's a high tide it's that like your boss is hoarding the ocean and your boat gets <laughs> yeah. to stay on the dry sea floor like you know yeah and this same detachment from the day-to-day -day struggles, the the actually seeing in your actual day-to-day -day life that mm -hmm. fundamental contradiction between the interest of the boss and the interest of the workers, mm -hmm. that detachment also leads to one of the things we complain about all the time with business unionism, which is their approach to how to improve labor conditions and labor law, which is through electoralism and through the attachment to the, the parasitic Democratic Party. It, it is this idea that, well, oh, okay, the state is a, is a spot for, you know, making 
for it, it serves as a neutral party. It's a it's a referee that we can struggle for, and and then we can have an even split between labor and capital, which is a, not a thing that is possible and can ever happen. Like it, in in this sort of mentality, this idea that well, if labor law sucks, what we need to do is we need to collect our dues money from our members, and we need to use it to campaign for Democrats who will vote for labor law that we want. And if if you want a long history of why that doesn't work. Uh, definitely check out the decline of American unionism series. We got into like decades of why that has never worked and will never work uh, because fundamentally within capitalist society, there is a structural disadvantage that the working class has in trying to influence politicians, even in a bourgeois, a, a bourgeois democracy functioning as it claims and ours does not function as it claims. Um, so like you, there, there's no way through like campaign funding that you're ever going to outspend the capitalists on influencing politicians. Right. And, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, it's all of this together, which all comes from that detachment, that lack of democracy that where the people who are on the shop floor doing work, whatever, whatever job that may be, then those are not the people running the union. That is the fundamental problem with business unionism. And that is what is, as we argued in the decline of American unionism series, based on the excellent work of uh, researcher, Kim Moody, um, labor historian, par excellence, uh, who uh, pointed out that like that has been the fundamental problem uh, that has led to why we only have about 6% of workers in this country in a union is because of this style of unionism. And that's, that's really why we spent so much time talking about it and why we harp on rank and file unionism so mm-hmm. much. Absolutely. And so at this point, we've gone over what we have kind of defined as uh, what is a rank and file union? What are some examples of how people are not organized in a democratic fashion that we would advocate for as a form of rank and file movement? And so one of the things that we haven't hit on yet is how do we actually do this? I think that we have a, some really good rhetoric of, of like, you know, we want democracy not just in rhetoric, but also in practice. And so how is it that we learn this? And I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go and do another shout out to the ALU and their reference of William Z. Foster's organizing methods in the steel industry, which... This is not going to be an exhaustive list of how-tos. I mean, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the, all of our material conditions, are, are they change. They're not exactly the same. Even when we went over the ALU's episode, um, we, we mentioned how they you know, threw out some common practices because they weren't quite working for them, and they went to other things that ended up working really well and leading them to their victory. And so what we're going to do here is we're actually going to go over not the whole text, but some key uh, quotes from the text and kind of discuss what those things actually mean. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's start that out. Uh, which one of you wants to read the first one? Uh, I can. Uh, so we have some quotes from William Z. Foster's Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry, as Lena said, and these first few are on the need to involve the maximum number of workers, which is really critically important. Uh, and the quote goes, every effort must be made to draw the widest possible ranks of the workers into the activities of the leading decisive committees and also into the work of the organizers and the union generally. Only with such democracy or system- systematic mass participation can the great task of building the union be successfully accomplished. 
And then he also says, a central aim must always be to draw the largest possible masses into direct participation in all the vital activities of the union, membership recruitment, formulation of demands, union elections, petitions, pledge votes, strike votes, strike organization, etc. This gives them a feeling that the union is actually their movement. And then we have our third quote where he says, the campaign can succeed only if thousands of workers can be organized to help directly in the enrollment of members. This work cannot be done by organizers alone. Their main task is to organize the most active workers among the masses in great numbers to do the recruiting. The tendency common in organization campaigns to leave the signing of new members solely to the organizers and to recruitment in open meetings should be avoided. And I think they're all really great points, but that one in particular, I think, is really borne out by the success of the ALU. Because when Mm -hmm. you see interviews with the organizing members who actually put this union together, and there are a ton of them, they they really harp on this point. It was like, not only was I signing people up to to be in the union to sign a card to vote yes, whatever, but then they would go out and replicate that behavior. And it was that almost, you know, I'm hesitant to call it viral because it, it's a word that gets overused in the internet era, but it's almost like a viral marketing campaign within the body of the workers themselves that really makes this effective. Yeah, and I and it's similar to that idea of of like burnout that I was mentioning in that like if you only have a very small amount of people doing things they have limited time and mm-hmm. if you really wanted them to be able to reach every single member then they would be spending 20 hours a day doing all of that work and it's just unsustainable in that way and also in that case kind of undemocratic because we actually want to engage all of the working people and tell them that they have the power to bring in other members to actually explain, and they should know. That's really big part of the organize or of, of the educational part of rank and file unionism is actually letting people know what it means to be in control. Because with the way that everything is so undemocratic in our lives, we actually, in some cases, get overwhelmed by the idea. Oh, wait, we're going to be in charge. Uh, I don't know what to do. Well, and you know, the truth is, is that they that you people do know what to do they just need a little bit of guidance into you know actually applying what they know to be a democratic structure in going out and reaching every single person and additionally i think that one of the things that's important about this is that we're not just you know if if we have such a small group of people it can very easily become uh you know subject to things like racism and other sorts of like uh, exclusionary policies where, you know, maybe all of the organizer or most of the organizers are, are white or something like that. And they don't actually end up reaching out to some of like the black people who are working on the shops or the queer people who are working on the shops. And, and those, those sorts of very important, uh, aspects of like the workers democracy. And by bringing all of those people in and giving them actual say, we're not only, widening the base of participation within the union but we're growing the strength of the union in solidarity with one and ch- one another based on our material conditions that we all live under yeah i mean exactly because i think what what you just pointed out i think really hits on something that's important that foster is pointing out here because you know we've done our whole i don't know almost an hour now talk about why from a principled perspective democracy is important from like a, a class perspective why it matters why we should organize that way but from the practical side of things i think what foster hits on especially like yeah in this last selection especially when he says their main task is to organize the most active workers among the masses in great numbers to do the recruiting 
he's hitting on one of the things about rank and file unionism that when it's actually conducted gives it so much power, which is that like people will point out, Oh, well, if you want everybody in the union to be an organizer, that's going to be so difficult to coordinate. That's so many people. You got to do all this training. That's so many resources. Sure. Yes, it's true. It's a lot of work to make everybody an organizer. But when you do that, the amount of power, that, that that gives the union. Because instead, oh, we've got 10 organizers going around at this place. Oh, how many people work there? There's a thousand people at this facility. And you, maybe we've taught, if you're doing a rank and file organizing drive and you've convinced a hundred people that, that the union is important and you've gone through this process of training them to be organizers, now you have a hundred organizers, which is like when you turn everybody in the union into an organizer as, as Foster's advocating here. And again, like this is, this is a pamphlet from the depression. This is from almost a hundred years ago. I think this was written in 1936. Um, and, but that those points are still incredibly important today. And, and as you were saying, John, like is exactly what so many of the key organizers in the ALU talked about being so central mm-hmm. to their victory. Yeah. Well, yeah, I and mean, many, many hands make light work. I mean, it's folk wisdom, but it, it's really true. You know, it's true. Oh, it's yeah. the power of the collective. Mm-hmm. It's, absolutely. And the next uh, little section of quotes we have is on uh, fighting the boss's attempt to split workers. And uh, this first one is, uh, the campaign must develop a strong discipline among the organizers and workers in order to prevent the movement from being wrecked by company-inspired local strikes and other disruptive tendencies. The necessary discipline cannot be attained by issuing drastic orders, but must be based upon wide education work among the rank and file and development of confidence among them in the cause and ultimate victory of the movement. And then continuing, special efforts should be made to fight against employer-cultivated craft unions, company unions, anti-foreigner, anti-Negro, and anti-red tendencies among these workers. And that's, again, like a lot of the the issues with racism in those undemocratic structures and and also like like anti-effective organizing when you see anti-communism what you're seeing is a push against effective organizing yeah and and i mean obviously some of the language in this one's a little dated but like he also hits at because i i company like some of this stuff that might seem a bit confusing like company-inspired local strikes, craft union, company union rhetoric. Well, what, what is that? So that sort of language isn't really used now. It was more back in the Depression. But what he's really referring to there is a type of tactic that is still very much used today, which is basically trying to convince one portion of the workers, oh, well, the work you do is skilled work. You... You should be in your. You shouldn't be in this organization with the the unskilled workers. Right. You need your own organization. You should do your. You shouldn't be with them. Which, like, is one of those things that to somebody who hasn't been, you know, doesn't. Which most people have not had, like, you know, class introduction to class analysis. Anti communism is the official religion of the United States, so it's very strong. But so, like, it's that sort of thing can if not inoculated against, have pull with, with some folks. But it's so important to fight against because even though it may sound like sometimes employers, that's a concession saying you should have a union, just not this one. They're trying to find any way 
to split the workers apart from each other that they can. Like an example of this that we have talked about when we covered the New York Times Tech Guild, one of the things that the New York Times did to try and hamstring their union drive was to say, oh, well, these project managers that we employ who don't have hiring and firing power, they, you know, they're not, it's not like when we talk about management, they don't have the ability to fire workers. They, they don't have the profit incentive to be on the side of the bosses. Right. But we're saying they're different workers. They shouldn't be with all these technical workers as a way to drive the bargaining unit down and to split workers against each other. So this sort of tactic is still constantly used. And so it's really important that like exactly what you were saying, Lena, like he's emphasizing like that we have to fight against racism. We have to fight against sexism. All of these, like the various forms of bigotry that the ruling class uses to split workers against each other, but also that this, any sort of distinction like this, where, whether it's skilled and unskilled workers or any sort of thing like that, that the, the, the could break up the unity of the workers in the union drive. Yeah, absolutely. And so, this next one definitely appreciated this because I mean, this just hits on something we've already talked about, but he has a section in here that I really wish a lot more unions had listened to back in the thirties and up through now about what the, you know, the reliance on politicians in the state for any sort of assistance where he says, the organization campaign must be a fighting movement. It must realize that if the steel workers are to be organized, they can only rely upon themselves and the support they get from other workers. While every advantage should be taken of all political institutions and individuals to defend the steel workers' civil rights and to advance their interests generally, it would be the worst folly to rely upon Roosevelt, Earl, or other capitalist politicians to adopt measures to organize the steelworkers. There's every probability that only through a great strike can the steelworkers establish their union and secure their demands. And this perspective must be constantly borne in mind. Hey, you know, uh, I can tell the ALU read this one because uh, <laughs> yeah. every time they get asked about this stuff, they have the exact right answer. And it's, it's really cool to see because... Uh, I mean, we we saw this as a as a general talking point, even as recently as the most recent presidential election, where everyone was mm-hmm. saying like, "Oh, Biden's not that great, but at least he's a union guy." And it's like, I right. don't give two shits if a Democrat is a quote union guy. It doesn't fucking matter. It has never fucking mattered. And in many ways, it's as much of a hindrance to the union movement as politicians who actively oppose it. Well, and I think that this is also a really great example because, you know, when when Chris Smalls was asked about AOC, he said, no, she doesn't deserve this win. And that's because she didn't actually go out and support the union during before they got their big win. But then recently we actually saw that, uh, you know, like Bernie and AOC, I think, and a couple other politicians went out and supported the um, uh, LDJ the other? the LEDJ5 like rally and like that's great they, they there's nothing wrong with accepting a little bit of support from people when it comes to just like you know political rhetoric but that you can never rely on that uh, the pol- the politician needs to be supporting the union not the other way around exactly mm-hmm. exactly uh and so so you know i think that that is really really important and to realize that you know you basically are the people that you can rely on are the people in your union the people who are actually of the rank and file the organized and educated in that those those uh rank and file methods and making sure that that is again the widest base possible within the union but since the politicians don't share the same interests as the workers who are at the point of production you definitely cannot rely on them yeah and and it also like because we talk about this general concept all the time too 
even when we're not talking about individual politicians, there's an understanding in that quote. And, and we've seen again through, through rank and file organizers, like in like the ALU, especially, but also in like Starbucks where with like the NLRB, where it's like, sure, if the NLRB is going to do its job or claim to and try and help the workers out and to fight back against illegal union busting, great, wonderful. But we're not going to rely on it because it's part of the capitalist state. And right. therefore, even if you have well-intentioned people on it, it's not set up to help the workers because it's part of the state, which is controlled by and made up for the ruling class. So we'll, if, if there's help coming from an organization like that, great, but we're never going to rely on it. And we're never going to like make it so that the union is dependent on that sort of assistance. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then another really interesting point that Foster brings up is that unions need to be flexible and be able to grow through self-criticism. Ooh, I, I like the echoes of Mao I'm hearing here. Uh, and it says, uh, the quote from Foster reads, uh, the movement must be highly self-critical. That is, there should be a constant re-examination of the organization methods used. Only in such a way can the necessary adjustments be made in tactics to fit the different situations. And only thus can the workers and organizers avoid defeat and pessimism and be given a feeling of confidence and sure success. It is a fatal mistake to try to apply blueprint methods of organization to an industry that presents so many and varied situations as steel. Flexibility in the work is a first essential, and to achieve this requires drastic self-criticism. And I gotta say, you know, those are some words that the uh, the old AFL could stand to, to hear <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, like, the, the idea of a blueprint method is exactly what business unionism is kind of known mm -hmm. for and to say that you know every single union can just be you know ran by a couple lawyers and a couple staffers and then you know you got your small bargaining committee and the bargaining committee determines whether or not a contract's going to get through maybe there's a member vote but maybe you just say that it's going to be fine and you end a strike early like we just covered in one of the recent episodes sure well and, and these blueprint methods i mean they can fail whether you're the union or whether you're trying to fight the union i mean not to not to discredit all of the hard work that the starbucks and amazon employees have been putting into this process but i think a big part of the reason that those companies have been unable to fight back against the union is because they're still using like a 1980s union busting playbook and these workers are so much so fucking far ahead of that curve already well and to that point though that's part of why this is important, like uh, flexibility is important because as Foster says, every workplace is different. You've got varied people doing varied jobs. And mm -hmm. so organizing methods will change as well. But in addition to that, as you're alluding to <laughs> the union busters read our stuff is, right. is, 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 is what I'm, I'm kind of getting at here. So like they don't, while there has been some rather entertaining failures of them trying the same stuff over and over again that the that some of uh, the recent unions have figured out how to beat, they're going to come up with new tactics to try and counter anything that we've developed that has become useful and acceptable. Right. And so it's so important to constantly be evaluating our tactics and saying, is this working? Because another example that we talked about with the ALU, like – 
one of the things that's, that's been really common, especially in r- workplaces that are really, really harshly anti-union, mm-hmm. has been organizers going out and doing door knocking, going door to door to talk to workers at their homes where they won't be intimidated by, like, if they were being talked to, like, just outside the gate or whatever. But as the ALU folks found organizing on Staten Island, they started out their campaign trying to do door knocking and they were not getting a response from it. It was like, they were not getting that many people signing up. It was taking a large amount of investment of time and energy and they just weren't getting the return from it. So they evaluated it, said that wasn't working and shifted tactics and clearly found tactics that worked like through some of the other stuff that they were doing, some of their like multilingual organizing on group chats and all sorts of other things. And so it's this nest like, understanding that we have to be flexible because our enemies are constantly changing their tactics. So we have to be constantly evaluating what we're doing to see if, is it working? If so, great. Is it not working? Well, let's try and find out why and change stuff up. Absolutely. I mean, and there's a, without getting too deep in the technicals, there's an interesting kind of cybernetic, uh, uh, dimension to this as well that has to do with variety attenuation, which is like a system that wants to uh, regulate another system must contain at least as much variety within its methods and, and flexibility and adaptability as the system it's trying to regulate. And these monolithic systems like Amazon and Starbucks, uh, despite their best efforts, despite their union busters reading our literature, are just not able to come up with a new and, and wide variety of tactics as quickly as these intensely high variety systems that are the workers acting together uh, as this big heterogeneous mass that has a lot of different skills and interests and abilities and, and positions within the company. Well, that's a really interesting point. I hope at some point we get to, to cover what some of those uh, or organizational uh, methods are in mm-hmm. that cybernetic form, because that, that's honestly super interesting to me. It's really uh, big brain stuff, but it, it also requires explaining a lot of lingo. So moving on. <laughs> yeah. So, and for the, these these last couple quotes foster really emphasizes the need to constantly be sort of renewing our efforts so that we don't get bogged down and so that people stay energized because that's mm-hmm. that is certainly a risk with if you're trying to mobilize everyone in the union that's a lot of people to stay on message the whole time and so Uh, He points out the organization work must be carried out upon the basis of an energetic drive, not spontaneously and spasmodically or merely a slow, gradual growth. Sags in activity and loss of momentum are very dangerous in the drive by weakening the confidence of workers. And like before I go into the next one real quick, I just want to say like this is an area where I think sometimes the positivity that we see from rank and file union organizers can sometimes come off as like bravado, Mm -hmm. but it's, I really think more it's an understanding of how important it is to keep people energized, to keep that, that revolutionary optimism at all times, because the company is going to be trying to demoralize people constantly any way that they can. And so it's so important for us to, and, and as difficult labor and time intensive as this is, but to constantly be like checking in with our comrades to mm-hmm. make sure like, Hey, everything's still going good. Everything like oh, anything. Uh, and if yeah. stump isn't, you how find out, Oh, oh, it's not let, let's figure out how we can 
fix this, make it better and get everybody, you know, back and excited on this. Absolutely. And we saw that with like the supporting of people who were struggling within the union Mm -hmm. and the idea that when people were seeing like downturns in their life or, you know, seeing uh, houselessness or, or anything like that, that those are the kinds of things we address because we cannot have that sort of, or like despair, that, 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 that sort of, yeah, that sort of despair within the actual uh, movement itself, because like that can be really infectious as, you see people get really bogged down and feel like there's not a path out that actually lowers motivation and actually will is really uh will will plague the organization itself and to keep that sort of again revolutionary optimism is essential in these in these organization drives well yeah i mean organizing a union like any act that i guess is fundamentally uh political or political and economic is it's an evangelical exercise. Like you are trying to convince a group of people to do something and also to continue to convince each other to do it. Uh, the difference is, I guess, evangelists try to convince you to like give money to their mega church or whatever. Whereas with a union, you're trying to convince each other to uphold one another and make sure that you have a voice in your workplace and something that's really worth doing. And so, yeah, you might feel a little corny at the free concert uh, to talk to other workers about the union where you're handing out little bags of weed, but like you're doing something really cool. So just get over how corny it feels. It's okay to be corny sometimes. Yeah. Cause <laughs> honestly it fucking rocks. That's the thing about organizing like this is that it's, it does is really awesome and it's super cool that you're going out there and you're actually fucking fighting. Like what is cooler than that? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. You're a modern subject, a postmodern subject, however you want to call it. You're afraid of sincerity. I'm afraid of sincerity, too. It's okay. We'll get over it together. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but so one of the other things, though, like to this necessity to keep energy up, but also to his points about flexibility, and this isn't a quote, but just an observation I had when I was reading this, because mm-hmm. one thing I will say, and we'll include a link to the Marxist.org like, page for organizing uh, workers in the steel industry, because it's not long. It was a pamphlet. But in it, Foster talks about the need to use all available media to broadcast stuff about the union to drum up support. He talks about the the utility of promoting the union in newspapers, with flyers, stickers, buttons, radio, and even movies, which this is in 1936. So like getting into radio and movies, like that's like relatively a young medium at the time, which I think now we can sort of think of as all of the myriad forms of social media Mm -hmm. that are out there for getting our, the word out. And I thought that was a really interesting, like, push from him for basically like take every avenue that you can use to get this information out there because that is one of the things that we saw the workers in the ALU were so successful at was like they were getting stuff out like yeah they're handing out flyers and he and and Foster emphasizes this too not just in English they were handing out materials in every language that workers were there that they could get stuff translated into they were using WhatsApp and like Telegram and and making TikTok videos of union busters going around doing unfair labor practices like all this sort of stuff that we might see a typical union campaign will pick one of these, maybe two of these. And, but it was this approach of, of maximizing the amount of the means of communicating what the union's goal is, what it's fighting for to as many people as possible by taking advantage of all of these means of communication, I think was a really important thing to highlight. And then, so just to, to wrap up with one last quote that I think, I mean, we, we've, we've touched on this point and how, how important and useful it can be before in a whole bunch of different union drives, 
but he he talks about quote similar supporting committees should be formed among fraternal organizations churches and elsewhere where active sympathizers be found for the steel campaign and so like i don't want to focus on the specifics but what he's hitting at is that like when we're making these doing these union drives and we're organizing these workers and 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 when we're trying to come together the we have to make that understanding that it's like the workers don't live at the mill or the the right. warehouse they're part of a broader community and 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 and, and not just like you know, homo, econ- what is it? Economicus or whatever, that idea of the rational economic subject or whatever. Right, right. Like, <laughs> it's like, no, it's like, they're, it's like they're human beings and they're part of all of these other organizations. Ch- like, like he says, fraternal organizations, churches elsewhere, but like all sorts of different community groups. And so where we can find potentially sympathetic working class organizations, we should be involved in those we should be working to with them to support the union because like workers have lives outside their jobs and and because this union drive the whole point is to give workers control over their lives like we should be involving in every aspect uh, that that people are involved in and and it, and so engaging the community more broadly in our organizing can be an incredibly important piece of building a successful union drive right this is an extension of using every media platform in a certain sense i mean it's not exactly media it's more of like just where people exist but i mean like if a lot of people in your union go to church like maybe you should figure out what churches they're going to and maybe see if yeah. they're interested in reaching out to get support i mean a sermon in support of the the union is going to do a lot for people who are believers i mean that is going to solidify with them that something similar something akin to a liberation theology where they believe that their struggles are intertwined with one another i mean that that's exactly what we want to see when promoting unionism and and democracy in our lives yeah absolutely <sighs> wow this has been honestly almost cathartic for me with going going through all of these things because uh, I, I mean it's all been kind of floating around in my head and to finally organize these ideas and be able to share them with everyone uh, has been a real real joy honestly and I want to thank all of the patrons who actually make this sort of thing possible I mean we really would not be able we wouldn't even be at this point in the show and doing these educational episodes without your support. It's just, it's just the truth. And so again, thank you. And I encourage you to, you know, share your favorite episodes with people. I mean, if you're in the middle of a union drive or whatever, and you're trying to educate people, I mean, I don't even care if you download this and share it amongst your union. I mean, that's, that's one of the things about this education is it's about sharing. We have the paywall because we need to be able to support the show. It's unfortunate, but it's true. <laughs> um, but in that note, I, um, we're going to wrap for this episode. So jump in the Discord and you can talk to us about this. We can have a discussion. You can talk to other workers about this. That sort of communication is essential. And, uh, you know, for the patrons, another benefit, again, are the stickers. If you haven't gotten them yet, go ahead and message us your address, and we'd be happy to send them out. And support us, you know, with reviews wherever you can figure out how to do it. Uh, you know, take the, the stickers that we're going to send you, put them on your hard hat, you know, put them on your weed pen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> write a review in the sand at the beach at low tide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I can't thank you enough. And as we all know, 
going over all of this, we have to go back to the classic work stoppage line, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. That's right, solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. I've been dreaming of an alternate reality, Prey of colonizers severing our history, with a connection to land and earth identity. Like where I belong is a mystery Not a ragtag, plastic personality Built upon everything we grew up on TV Isolated in the suburbs from community The power's unprecedented in unity Surviving, we vibing, living life, and children ain't crying or dying from a broken nation. Families torn apart, incarceration, trade a hoodie for hips, straight gentrification, and assimilated to a world alienation. Either with the evil empire reigning, plus of its system working against us, we still trendsetters, go getters, when nothing we make a world better. Could you imagine if we never got robbed? If our land and our labor was stolen by the bourgeois, if we weren't targeted by the law, but we coming out on top of the like it or not? Dystopia, so the system thrives, worked out violent screams, but the people gonna wake up and break up because it's not a dream. We're gonna eat the rich, we're gonna feed the kids when there's nothing left to eat, and y'all been warned about your greed, exploiting for your salaries.
left deviationism or right deviationism and his response was they are both worse yeah and, and like that sounds like a goofy response but it's like when you actually like get into it, it's like no that yeah that, like but both have problems for a reason you can't like right. you can't tackle one or the other it's like right mm. what's better adventurism or opportunism it's like right, mm, they're right. Both bad. Like, yeah no i mean that because that's basically yeah it's that that's really it it's like uh neither <laughs> they're both worse i have to admit adventurism is cooler that doesn't make it better <laughs> yes but it's definitely cooler than opportunism <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'll give you that <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like like a like a, a a leftist guy online who's really mad at the Joker movies because they uh, portray adventurism. <laughs> well, that was something that 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 fucking movie. First off, that movie is so bad. But never like, saw it. <laughs> don't. It's like not. It's because it's it's not even worth a hate watch. Like there there's a couple mm-hmm. of scenes that are accidentally funny because of how shitty they are. But mostly it's just. <laughs> boring and well lame. it's like uh I, I i listened to a snippet of an interview because someone was trying to convince me to watch it and they were like listen to this interview with todd phillips i think is the guy who directed yeah, it yeah yeah the hangover director yeah the, the guy who did the hangover and they were like uh you know watch this clip of an interview with him where he like really gets into his process about what he was trying to make and it had the same vibe as that scene where um the guy who made Breaking Bad was describing mm-hmm. uh, Walter Gilligan. White's. Okay, spoilers for Breaking Bad if you haven't seen it. But <laughs> he's, he's describing Walter White's death, and he's like, he got to go out like a man. And I'm like, you, my brother in Christ, you made the scene, and that's what you took away from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's yeah. the stupidest fucking interpretation. Yeah, I of mean, an like excellent piece of media. <laughs> that the I've the ever only heard. logical interpretation of that ending is it like this is the this ultimate failure is the result of all of his previous actions it's like culminating in that like the stuff that the choices he made prior to the ending were bad <laughs> like yeah, that's so what in, you're, in like, you're in supposed like a to take away from that <laughs> in like a in a way that maybe is unintentional right he did go out like a man but i think it's a pretty damning commentary on manhood sure yeah <laughs> as I mean, opposed I guess to like the the, yeah. the like gritty macho thing ta- uh, um what's his name who vince gilligan vince thought gilligan, that it yeah. was yeah 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 i mean if you wanted to take it that way it's like if, if that you take his comment and then add to it and, and that shows the futility of this mindset and i be right. like, Oh, okay. Sure. But. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not what he thought. He's like, yeah, when Walter White died, 10 Harley Davidson all, all revved their engines <laughs> at the same time in salute. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like it just transitions into like sons of anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, basically man. that's what the people want. Uh, they just want the most like, uh, ideologically reaffirming media they can find, but something that's not ideologically reaffirming <laughs> is this show. <laughs> wait, 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 Am I supposed wait, to do a cold open now? No. Is that how this works? <laughs> We're gonna have to I retake mean... that. <laughs> I, I can just I can just dry launch into the intro here in a second. <laughs> 